Today, we talked to Beth and Lasana, two PhD candidates at the University of Washington School of Information. Lasana is studying digital literacy levels and perceptions among incarcerated people, and Beth is studying the role of libraries and natural disasters. We discussed their upbringing, journeys to Seattle, culture, history, education, and music. Find previous episodes of No Blueprint, playlists, and more at noblueprintpodcast.com. Be sure to follow, like, share, rate, and subscribe on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Peace. I could stay somewhere else and things could be easier for me, but I would rather know that I was like at home making this difference Mm. and that I couldn't change lots of things. And like there were lots of things that were completely out of my power, but like rebuilding the library at my school was one thing that was like completely up to me. What's up, everybody? I go by the name of Domo. And I go by the name of Yoshko. And each week, we sit down with cultural ambassadors to talk about how they defied societal norms to live their lives with, with no, no blueprint. blueprint. I, it's, that's such a complicated question. I think that culture is, you know, the beliefs, the values, the behavioral norms, language, food, all of those kinds of practices and behaviors that makes a group connected. And so I think that there's culture and then there's cultural identity, right? And the cultural identity is how we think we fit into those different cultural groups. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, yeah, I don't know how I'm gonna follow that one. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think at a very basic level, the way I think about it, culture is essentially everything uh, under the sun, right? So the, the people, the buildings, right? Food, the music, the clothing, uh, the institutions, mm. uh, all of these make up the culture, right? Our, our uh, experiences in the, with each of these things, whether it's the food or the, that we taste or the people that we interact with, all help form and shape uh, culture. So it's essentially everything that's under under the sun, essentially. Mm-hmm. I, I remember one of the memories that's quite uh, vivid in my mind was uh, around my name, right? So my name is Lasana, Lasana Magasa. And I remember I went to uh, school in uh, downtown Manhattan, you know, and I remember no one had a name like me, mm-hmm. right? And so felt like my name didn't belong, right? So um, I felt based on the culture that I was surrounded with, that my name should have been like a Michael or an or Alex or an Adam. And so I used to uh, want it to be that, right? But my culture was also influenced by uh, my neighborhood and my family, right? So I, I grew up in Harlem. Uh, we went to school in Lower Manhattan and I went and I lived in Harlem. So I would ca- catch the, the D train or the B train or the A train uh, up to Harlem every day. And you know, you'd walk through different cultures and different experiences and you know, you know, when I went to a store near my school versus I went to a, a bodega in my neighborhood, the interaction was really different, right? So it, it taught me kind of how to adapt and how to interact in those different cultural spaces, right? So some things or, or behaviors that would be automatically understood or identified with in my neighborhood wouldn't necessarily be the case if I was down, to, uh, down near my school. But also my family influenced my, my, my culture. You know, my parents are Muslim, so there's a, a heavy uh, Islamic influence, uh, cultural influence uh, growing up at home. Where, so. 
Man, I got a bunch of questions. But what about you? So my childhood was way different than that. Although I did, I did spend some time in upstate New York. I grew up in North Alabama, mm-hmm. and both of my parents were from North Alabama, and both of my sets of my parents' parents grew up there too. Wow. I think probably my first cultural influence is certainly my family. Mm-hmm. My family is very close, and we still are really close today. I probably talk to my mom and my sister almost every day mm-hmm. on the phone. Growing up being biracial too was probably one of my really early understanding of culture because I had two completely different sets of families. I had a white family and I had a black family. Mm -hmm. And really early on, I could see some of the differences in visiting both of those families. Mm -hmm. And probably one of the things that I remember is that I didn't look like my mom and I didn't look like my dad. We looked different than our parents where most people I think can look up to ideals of beauty or those kinds of standards, Mm -hmm. they define those in their family. But when you don't look like the other people, I think that there's a little bit of stretch for like understanding where you fit in. And so a lot of times strangers would come up to us and ask my mom where she got us from, assuming that my sister and I were adopted because when people looked at our family, they didn't believe that we all went together Mm -hmm. and my sister and I have really different (laughs) memories of that story (laughs) my memory says that my mom like was like oh I made them and she put her arms around us and my sister's memory is that my mom said she found us in the cabbage patch (laughs) and my mom blacked it out completely so nobody (laughs) nobody really remembers but I can remember that happening a few times and people kind of questioning why we were all together Mm. so also I grew up in Alabama right and I think That was probably my next cultural influence is going to elementary and middle school in like a small southern city. And so the kinds of foods that we ate and watching football on Friday nights and Saturdays was really, really important. Mm -hmm. I think all of those things influenced me from a very young age. Mm -hmm. Probably one of the things that was different than my in my experience was that My grandfather sued the Board of Education in my town so that my father became the first black student in Alabama to desegregate schools. Wow. And what that meant for me is that I grew up really early on with a strong sense of activism and a really heavy push towards education Mm -hmm. and sort of the options, options and privileges that education can allow you. And I think that those are probably two of the cultural values that got instilled in me in an early age that I've continued, you know, that has continued to shape the decisions that I make mm-hmm. and the, the projects I choose to work on. Wow. 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 <laughs> and then I'll, 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 get, I'll wrap up high school, too, because then we'll yeah. be in the same spot. Yeah. Um, I went to a small Catholic boarding school for high school and it was about 40 miles south of where I grew up and we'd go down there on Sunday afternoons and we'd stay until Friday afternoons and usually we'd come back home and spend the weekends at home Mm -hmm. but my high school was super small there were 23 other people in my graduating class 
and probably, <laughs> yeah, small, yeah, it's <laughs> tiny. Um, and we had the smallest class. I think the other classes had more like 30, 35, but still very, yeah. very small. And, you know, and I moved away from home. And I think that that's, that's certainly one of the things, one of the experiences that set me apart when I went off to college, mm. because college wasn't my first experience living away from home. Mm. I had already done that for four years. So sort of that first, you know, kind of initial, I don't have anybody watching me. Mm. The experience mm. happened for me when I was 14 rather than 18. Mm. And I think that that has made a big difference in how I treat my education, too. Right. Mm. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. You said your, your grandfather yes. went down and sued the, bo- the edu- Board of Education. Board of Education. What year was this? So this was in 1953. So before Brown? Yeah. Uh, no. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. 1963. So okay. Brown okay, okay. was 57. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yep. so it would have been 1963. So I think that they won the lawsuit in August of 63. And then September, I think it was the 3rd, my grandfather and my father tried to go to First Avenue School in Huntsville. Mm-hmm. But Governor Wallace sent state troopers to keep him. They shut the school down. Wow. And so they weren't allowed to register yeah. that day. Wow. So my grandfather sent a fax or not a fax, a telegraph, which we just found last time I I was was home visiting. No, (laughs) definitely not. I was like, no, what was that thing before that? He sent a telegraph, and we actually found the telegraph that he sent to, I think, the attorney general. But he sent a telegraph that was like, we tried to register, the school was shut down, and the state troopers were outside. And so then the president sent down the National Guard. Mm. And so about a week after that, he was actually able to start school. Mm. And I think that day was September 12th. Wow. I I also don't want to glance over that, like, observation of your mom and you and your sister and your understanding that, like, y'all didn't feel like y'all looked like either of your parents. What was that like being in the South? Yeah, I think, you know, I don't, I knew that I looked different than them. My dad had five younger sisters, so Mm -hmm. I had a lot of aunts and I looked sort of like one of them Mm -hmm. but really you know I really didn't look like anybody else and I think as my sister was always this would probably be easier for her to answer because she was kind of prissy when she was young I played a lot of sports and I really like there was no way I was going to like the salon and getting my hair straightened on a Saturday like it wasn't it still won't happen today but I definitely wasn't doing it when I was a little kid so I just had like a little afro for a really long time and I always just kind of thought I looked weird you know Mm. like I didn't look like any of the other kids in my class and like my eyes were green and my hair would turn kind of like a weird red color in the summer and I always thought I looked weird and then I saw purple rain And I know it's kind of a funny thing, but like I saw Apollonia and I was like, oh my gosh, she's so beautiful. Mm. And I realized that I kind of looked like her, you know, that my features, even though I hadn't seen anybody else on TV, I definitely had never seen. I mean, I read all the time, but I don't remember reading any books that had like biracial characters. I had like Virginia Hamilton books and things like that, but I never remember seeing anybody that had like a blended family or that looked like me. Hmm. And so probably Purple Rain was first and then like 
like Denise on the Huxtable show. Okay. Those are probably the first two people. I, I just remember feeling weird and awkward when I was young, but those were the first two people that I visually thought I looked like, yeah. and that kind of helped me kind of come into my own of like, you know, what, you know. Nice. My perception nice. of myself. What? That's funny. That's Purple great. Purple, um, <laughs> Prince uh, does it again. Yeah. Little, little known fact, Prince and I have the same birthday. Hi. <laughs> That's great. You know. <laughs> You're wearing purple, too. Oh, yeah. That's me. <laughs> yes, we're connected. We're connected. I w- actually wore this for y'all. Go Husky. Go Husky. Go Husky. Go Husky. Husky. Purple, purple, purple Friday. Friday. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm wondering, Beth, how did, how did your dad talk about that experience after? I mean, how did that influence? So my dad wasn't that? there when that lady came up. But, I mean, I think... Probably the specific instances when my dad talked to us a lot about culture was uh, I can remember him getting pulled over by the police Mm. when he was driving and he had a nice car. He had like he had a Porsche for a little while when we were growing up and then he had like a BMW and you know, we lived kind of in the country, like you were talking about walking to places, like I could ride my bike and never make it to anything, like no stores or any, you know, it was like lots of time in the woods and rock climbing and stuff like that. I can remember when we'd drive around with him, he'd get pulled over all the time. And I can remember asking him like, you know, and and, and the cops would always think that it wasn't his car, mm-hmm. you know, and he would explain to us why there was this assumption that he was a black man driving mm-hmm. too nice of a car, mm-hmm. that it didn't belong to him. And, and he, also he was young. My parents had me at a really young age, so I think that also played, in you know, into their assumption. Mm-hmm. But I remember him, a lot of times I hear when people ask me where I'm from and I say Alabama, the next thing they say is, well, you don't really have an accent. Mm. And I do sometimes, it gets worse, you know, depending <laughs> on how many adult beverages I've had. <laughs> but And when I say certain things, but one thing that he always said is that you're a black woman from the South and people will discredit you because you're from the South, because mm. you're a woman and because you're black. And so the last thing you need to do is open your mouth and start talking, you know, with a twang. Mm. And so he constantly pointed out mm. like instances of injustice and ways that we would be perceived differently and taught us how to act accordingly, mm. you know, to kind of navigate, you know, those those things that we have to teach our, our brown kids. Right, 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 right. Interesting, actually, because wow. for my, 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 my experience growing up was a little bit different from that perspective, right? And as you were talking, I mean, I thought about, thought back to my experiences in elementary school. I, I remember, I don't like, I don't like remember myself as like being like a bad kid or anything but I remember I used to always get suspended I spend it from class or get suspended from lunch and then I'd have to actually go all the way to Harlem for lunch and then get back on the train and come back to school and I never you know to this day I still actually don't understand why but I mean I actually do now I guess right so they're kind of telling me I don't belong right Mm. Uh, but my parents never ever articulated that what they always told me is that you need to go to school Right. right for them, it was a priority that I go to school mm. and that I get an education mm. uh, and I get, and, and then I uh, pass my classes and I stay out of trouble for some reason I don't know like I said I don't remember being like a bad kid, but for some reason I was always in trouble and so that also also they would confuse me and my brother um, so you guys are identical we're identical oh. 
And so they, then they wouldn't know who did what. And they, <laughs> 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 he was your brother. <laughs> Maybe. I don't trouble know. all the but time. But even him, he's, he's actually more quiet than me. He's just like, he's like a mouse. I mean, he's just <laughs> raving now. He goes to work and goes home and, you know, I, I call him and we talk and he says a few words and, and that's it. <laughs> so I can't imagine he was doing anything. <laughs> there is the backdrop of the Harlem Renaissance, the Malcolm X's, the there's so much culture, black culture and black history that came out of Harlem. And Beth growing up in the South in the heart of what was the civil rights movement and all of what is the, the culture of black culture in the South, I guess, how did those... How did that influence y'all? And then what about where you were at influenced your upbringing? Well, interestingly, I don't think... Definitely at elementary school, I don't ever remember learning about anything about like Harlem Renaissance. I mean, I think I might have heard Malcolm X and, and Martin Luther King once or twice. But I really didn't learn about the culture of Harlem until I went away to college. Uh, in high school, I think... It might have been more exposure, but there's nothing notable or, or memorable um, that sticks out to me. Most of what I learned about my uh, about Harlem culture and the culture of my community came from the, from the community, right? So it was uh, things like value of, uh, excuse me, uh, the importance of honor and respect and sticking together, right? And basketball and music, right? Mm. So those were the those were the cultural values. Even now, I mean, if you go to Harlem, it's changed a lot. Uh, the culture is not what it once was and and honestly I don't like I'm I can't confidently say that the young people in the community know about how rich the past or even recent past there was there I mean the only thing <laughs> yeah I think uh, is that famous restaurant um, oh Red Rooster no no no, no. no uh, it's a woman's name, yeah, a woman, right? Yeah, a woman's name. Sylvia? Sylvia, yeah. yeah. So Sylvia, like everyone knows. Yes. <laughs> everyone knows Sylvia, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're like on the flight path. <laughs> <laughs> There's booming systems. Windstorm has come. Windstorms. <laughs> There's ghosts in here. <laughs> All right. For some reason, when you asked that question, the first thing I thought about was switches. <laughs> like, getting, <laughs> is like getting in trouble and having to go pick a switch. Oh my God. Like, pick your own poison. Yeah. And I don't, I don't remember being in trouble a lot either, like, clearly sometimes, but. I don't know why. I mean, I, I'm feeling like if you grew up in a city, you probably didn't have to pick your own switches when you got in trouble. Um, the statutes of limitations. Yeah, yeah that's... I, I can recall my great-grandma making me go do some of that. Um, that I think is a direct product of growing up. You know, I mean, I think kind of growing up, like, kind of near farms, you know, yeah. we sat outside and shelled a lot of peas mm. and talked about, you know, that's where I think a lot of our stories kind of got passed along. And my family was very involved in history, you know, in our local town. And right. my grandfather had a camera and a video camera. So he had taken a lot of footage of, of the civil rights movement. And wow. so I think that, you know, we were very aware from a young age mm. of, of what happened in our community and we were always involved in like big brother big sister like mm. volunteering to tutor other kids and we were always going out and doing you know kind of uplifting things in mm. the community as well 
Um, and I think that that, you know, I moved to New Orleans when I was 18 to go to college. And I think that that kind of, I've always been like a history fan. Hmm. So like going to places that are older than what I can imagine are always fascinating to me. Like mm. I was the kind of kid that would like watch the civil war time life mm. series like over and over <laughs> again. Cause I just loved like those things mixed together. Yeah. And so when I moved to new Orleans, new Orleans was like the perfect blend of like historical culture nice. and it allowed me to learn, you know, and change, you know, the person that I was, it certainly added several spheres onto, you know, the cultural understandings that I had from mm. when I I was a kid nice. and you know people ask me you know I, I always say I grew up in New Orleans I spent mm. my childhood in Alabama but I grew up mm. in New Orleans it made nice. me like the adult that mm. I am what school in New Orleans I went to Loyola University in New okay. Orleans for shout undergrad shout Wolf out to Pack. Loyola okay Wolf Pack. Right. and then I got my first master's degree from LSU hey. in Baton Rouge go Tigers listen <laughs> all right listen I I was gonna dive deeper but I, I where did you go to college Asana? Uh, actually I went to a historical black college and university called St. Paul's College in mm -hmm. Lawrenceville Virginia fortunately it's closed now which is a phenomenon we've been seeing with a lot of our uh, black HBCUs. Uh, yeah. institutions generally but Specific, more specifically, the HBCUs. Mm. Um, but it was a great, 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 great experience. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Mm. And um, you know, the way I actually ended up there is kind of bizarre. But everything happened for a, re a reason. I, the, uh, <coughs> I was supposed to go to another college. I think it was uh, uh, Connecticut. And that summer is when I used to party. I um, was going like. Dominican clubs up in Washington Heights and, <laughs> and uh, didn't send like some money or something and so I couldn't go to that school that I was supposed to go to and so I went to my librarian uh, off of Fordham Road fabulous lady I don't remember her name right now but she I went down there uh, to the library and I told her like uh, I gotta go to college like my parents were expecting me to go to college and she was like well have you ever heard of uh, HBCUs I was like no um, she's like well you should th you should think about going to St. Paul's College and uh, so she, like, right there and then got me registered. It was like a rolling admissions. Uh, and I got admitted, and um, I went to my dad. He gave me $1,500. I um, got my suitcase, and I went down to school, and that was, that was I was about wow. to say, he made it like that happen in the same day. <laughs> <laughs> went to, went to the library. Right, yeah. went, to the went to the library. Right. Got back the from morning. the club at four. Realized, oh, shoot. Um, so... What did y'all do after college? I got a degree in education and I started teaching for the New Orleans public school system. And I worked at a creative arts citywide access school, so a magnet school that was in the French Quarter in New Orleans. And it was, it was an amazing place to work. We had like open permission slips, so the parents just signed one permission slip at the beginning of the year. And I could take my class out of the classroom anytime I wanted to, as long as we could like walk. I just had to like leave a note in the office. Mm. So we could walk down to the Mississippi River and write mm. our journals or walk to the cathedral and have everybody draw something that they saw there. And so really we got to have the kind of whole French Quarter be our classroom. And there yeah. was lots of band and lots of art classes and those kinds of things. A lot of the big New Orleans, or, you know, some of the big New Orleans musicians went to that school as kids. Mm. And it was super great. I did that for about five years, and then I went back and got my master's degree and became a librarian. I worked 
the first school I worked at was a French Montessori school, mm-hmm. actually. So they had a French immersion program, and then the other half of the school was a Montessori mm-hmm. school. So we had kind of two library collections to keep mm-hmm. up with. Mm-hmm. And then I became the head librarian at an all-boys Catholic school. And we had our school was 125 years old when I started working wow. there. And we had about 1,200 boys. And I was there... I think I got hired in July. No, I think I got hired in June. And I got hired in June, and so I started in July. And then August 29th, Hurricane Katrina hit. Mm-hmm. And so we were displaced and homeless for a few months until the city reopened at the end of, or for a month when the city opened at the end of October. And so I spent the next few years after that rebuilding our school library and writing grants and um, raising money to kind of, you know, replace all the infrastructure that we lost and had the opportunity to set up several temporary libraries in different size trailers and finally getting to design a permanent library for our new school building. And, you know, kind of Both of those, you know, the experience of growing up being biracial and not having materials of families that looked like mine or kids that looked like mine, that experience and this experience in Katrina are probably two of the pivotal ones for me and that have at least that have shaped my research and what Mm -hmm. I spend the most time investigating. Okay. What did you learn about yourself during Hurricane Katrina or after Hurricane Katrina? First, I learned like what things were kind of most important to me. We left in a hurry. And so there were like things that I wish I had with me that I worried about, you know, all the time that were like a couple of pieces of jewelry that my grandmothers had given me that I knew I couldn't replace. Mm -hmm. And then artwork that my friends made me Mm -hmm. and then photographs. I think pictures and like the memories that I had created with my friends and family, like those three things, like if I ever had to grab all the stuff that was most important to me, again, if I had 15 minutes, I'd have no problem with Mm. that. Before where I thought I needed all of these things to like make my life. Right. I learned that I personally could go through way more than I I was that that I was way stronger than I really thought possible I always worked and I'm a workaholic so I never really thought about like not having a house or not having a car or not having stores even to buy groceries so that you could make food and you know we'd have to eat from the Salvation Army food trucks and we'd have to get MREs from FEMA and we camped out in our house for like six weeks without power. A tree fell through the back part of our house and we lost the roof in the front part of our house. But like our middle bedroom and the bathroom and like the kitchen were kind of okay. So like we camped out in that part while the other parts got fixed. And so it was just, you know, this idea that like, I could stay somewhere else and things could be easier for me, but I would rather know that I was like at home making this difference Mm -hmm. and that I couldn't 
change lots of things and like there were lots of things that were completely out of my power but like rebuilding the library at my school was one thing that was like completely up to me Mm. and I think that you know I learned that in moments when I am challenged I am going to rise to that a challenge to that challenge and you know like when obstacles happen in your life do they crush you or do you crush them And I think that I really learned that I'm a crusher of obstacles Mm. in that way. Mm. And I think probably the, you know, one of the important things that I've learned, and I, I just wrote about this today, that, like, the library at my school wasn't about the building or the books in it. Mm. And like my city wasn't about the infrastructure, that it was really all about like the people and the relationships there. And that kind of spirit of community and the resilience of our community is really what is most important. And that it doesn't really matter if we have any of this other stuff. Like what we have as a community, as a culture will persist and remain. What did you do after college, Asana? After college, I um, had to figure out what I needed to do with my life. <laughs> uh, first thing I did was uh, move back to New York, back to Harlem. And I got my, my undergrad in uh, computer science. And so then I started looking for jobs. And, you know, honestly, I, I feel like I feel like because my parents never uh, at least made it a point to let us know that 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 discrimination was real, that I never really ever considered it. So anytime I stepped in a, in a space or I sent my resume somewhere, I always assumed that they were judging me based on you know an eco criteria right? mm-hmm. uh, across everybody. But I didn't get many responses to my resume. And so I also applied for AmeriCorps, and I did get hired for AmeriCorps, and I was placed at a, uh, a community justice center in Harlem. Uh, it was called Harlem Community Justice Center. Uh, it's a reentry clinic, and uh, it also has youth court. Um, and so I worked there for I think two years as a, uh, a mediator, and uh, also doing their web design work and uh, going into the New York City public schools and uh, try, uh, and teaching um, conflict resolution, so alter- alternatives to violence and teen violence, um, dating violence, uh, gang intervention. Uh, and so I did that sort of work for a few years. And one of my mentors from my HBCU, uh, uh, Mr. Newkirk, or Dr. Newkirk now, he was the one who recommended I look at a MI, uh, uh, MLS program or MLIS program. And so Queens College uh, in New York had a uh, master's in library uh, and information studies program. AmeriCorps actually paid for most of that, if not all of it, because it's a government-funded program, and they give you a stipend and some money for school. What years did y'all come to Seattle? Same year. Same year, 2009. 2009. Wow, so you we were in the same cohort. Same cohort. Oh. Wow. Okay. Okay. Shout out. Shout out to the high school. That's legit. That is legit. See, coincidence? I think not. Yeah. So, so we both we both had we both came to high school under a fellowship that specifically looks at increasing the number of professors of color that we have in the library and information science field. What were your first impressions about Seattle? 
Where's my? I don't go pollo. Is that? Mm. I said it's a lot. Yeah. So I mean, food was my. You know, in New York, we you know we had a lot of variety of foods. There's a lot of variety of foods here, but the variety. I mean, it's, it's a different. It's yeah. a different variety. And so I was looking for my uh, my West Indies food and my Puerto Rican and Dominican food and my West African food, and it's not here. <laughs> <laughs> there are a few spots like, but there's spot like you gotta like you know, plan a full day trip to go and, and, and get it. <laughs> also, the communities are different. They're just different. Not like most people didn't look like me. Oh, I was surprised. I was always looking for black folks. I was like, there <laughs> are no black people here. And I didn't, I never lived a place, you know, like that, where mm. that hadn't been, you know, a big part of like what I saw every day. Mm. Mm. And so I, th- I think that that was probably the first thing that was like shocking. And then I didn't know that the sun was gonna go down so early. <laughs> and, like I knew, I knew it was gonna rain. You know, like I knew it was gonna be like drizzly. I did not know it was gonna get dark at like three o'clock. <laughs> and like, I think like the first two years I lived here that, and I, I didn't mind of course the sun being out late, but like right. it getting dark so early, I, that really like threw me off. Yeah, I had a hard time with that. Prior to 2009, had either of you been to Seattle, Pacific Northwest? I came out here in, when they opened Century, Century Link. I came out here for a Saints game in like 2004. So I have, I have season tickets. I've had them since 2002 in New Orleans. And so a group of us will travel and see games at different places. So like we've gone to Candlestick Park mm. in San Francisco and closer games. But we all came out to Seattle for a game when Century Link opened. And then I actually came here on my honeymoon. We flew to Seattle and spent a day here and then went up to like Vancouver and Whistler mm. and then the islands mm. and then nice. back to Seattle. So nice. I'd been here twice and then I came out for the interview. Oh, okay. So shout out to my parents who also have season tickets to the Saints. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had uh, visited Seattle one time before. It was a uh, for the I think the Special Libraries Association had their annual conference here. And so I came out for a few days. Seattle has good food. So I will say that, again, the selection is different, but they do, I especially like the seafood that's here. It's pretty high quality and it's affordable, or at least it used to be. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, there's been a cultural shift in Seattle while I've been here. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting because it reminds me a lot of the cultural shift that had begun while I was in Harlem. Mm-hmm. You know, so the displacement of, uh, of people whose lives uh, and history are embedded in in the community, and 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 like, you know, early on, I said culture is the you know is the buildings that exist in the community. Absolutely. Uh, and so, pretty much uplifting those buildings and and and, and changing the the decor of uh, of the the neighborhoods, so it gives a, a different uh, aura and uh, an image, uh, mm. losing what was here before and. It's interesting, there was a New York Times article that I came across uh, probably uh, last month. Someone, a, a, a journalist had, while well, they were walking in Brooklyn, I think Crown Heights, they found a, uh, a photo album on the, on the ground in the trash and they picked up the photo album and they took it home. And they opened it up and it was a bunch of pictures of someone like in the 1950s. And so they went through the pictures, they were trying to identify who the people were. Mm. Right. And so they took the, the the photo album back to the community, and you know they looked on. They took each picture out, like did like this big investigation, and found out it was a, a family who had lived and grew up in Crown Heights, mm. but um, they had moved out because 
of the community, the, the those people, XD politicians that help shape our communities had created a situation where they could no longer uh, exist in that space. Mm. Um, yeah. And so I see the same, I mean, the same thing is happening here this place, in, in, sure. in, in, in Seattle. I mean, if we look at Rainier Avenue, uh, you know, we have condos now going for over a thousand dollars. And condos being built everywhere. 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 So, and this is a, this is a, this is a community where there's, there's typically uh, mostly uh, like low income, middle income right. families. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, so. Mm-hmm. Where do y'all find community, I guess, now, being in Seattle? I'm lucky because one of my good friends' family has kind of adopted me, and they have some Louisiana roots. And Mm. so, you know, if it's Fourth of July barbecues, and I'm always welcome over there, and her cousins are my cousins, and they, you know, have come to my lectures and watch me lecture and things like that. And so I think that it took me a little while to find you know I think when I first got here you know we came here for school so we started you know kind of with our own little community at school like we took our classes together but as you know after those first two years when you're done with classes nobody's on campus anymore and so your focus kind of shifts from taking classes to like doing your own work Mm -hmm. and from then on I think the journey of finishing your PhD is kind of a lonely and isolating one because you work so much for me I found that in you know my friends and some of their family around here Hmm. that's a great question Uh, sometimes I feel like I don't have community here honestly so I mean, there's a mosque that I go to. There are sort of brothers uh, and sisters who we share some same uh, cultural and religious values. I mean, I think there's there's limits in terms of uh, even the community there. So I don't like I don't really feel like I have a community here uh, in Seattle. Um, it might be partly because of I live in the North End, and there's not many people that look like me in the North End, really. Um, I don't know. I don't know what it is, honestly, but I, don't, I can't I th- really say I have a community here. I think part of it for me has been that I've always kind of thought about Seattle as like a temporary place for me. Mm-hmm. Like I'm here for school and UW doesn't really hire their own PhD students. So mm-hmm. if I want to be a professor when I'm finished with school, it's the chances are that I'm going to have to move after this. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like I think part of you know, having true community is like, I kind of feel like a transient, like Mm. I'm here for now, but Mm. I won't be here that long. Mm. And certainly when I moved here, that was my idea. I've lived kind of near school and I lived up in like Edmonds, Linwood, and I just moved down to White Center. And I think I kind of mentioned this to you the other day, that it's the first time that I felt like I have a community Mm. and that I'm part of a community Mm. and that I go to like local meetings Mm. and that I'm starting to be involved in going to programs that Mm. are locally based. I mean, I think it's because I have more time, like I'm not (laughs) reading, I'm still kind of reading constantly, but (laughs) I guess my time is less structured than it used to be with all the classes and things and deadlines. So now I have more of an opportunity and now I think it's harder for me to think about leaving Seattle Mm. than 
when I got here. And I think that, that and a big part of that is because I'm just starting to find community. community. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we've had a lot of work to do. And I don't think that lends itself to like getting out there and mingling yeah. either. <laughs> I first moved to Seattle in 20. 20- 11 2012 and I moved to North Seattle mm-hmm. and it was super uncomfortable I was uh, the only person of color on the bus and was mm-hmm. like quickly was like I, I can't do this like this is awkward and had a friend who grew up on Beacon Hill and quickly moved to Beacon Hill and that's where Yoshi and I met at someone's uh, housewarming party mm-hmm. and I was like what you like Pharrell me too you like music <laughs> me too and so it was it's yeah and so definitely began to find that community once I went towards back to a place that had a strongly rooted community mm-hmm. of color in in Seattle so yeah absolutely I grew up in South Seattle my whole life so okay I guess I've seen people, I grew up with people around me who are just very diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely see it changing now. Mm. I'm just, I catch the bus a lot and just seeing the demographic change mm. on the bus has been very interesting because I've been taking it since I was in middle school. Mm-hmm. And just seeing that progression um, since then has been very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, what places do you go to for like the best food you've had in Seattle or good food or something close to something? <laughs> So I like Catfish Corner. If I they have sweet tea, and if I have a bad day, I like need sweet tea. And so Catfish Corner, like and it used to be, yeah, right yep. over, right 20, over there. Yeah. So I'm glad that it reopened. Um, I like Island Soul a lot too. Mm-hmm. That's um, everything there is always good. I think those are probably my two favorite. I take nice. that back. Catfish Corner, MLK, and Cherry. Yeah. I don't want to. I don't want people to kill me. That's, that's right. Twenty third. Get, cat, get Catfish Corner. It's right. on. That's on MLK. Then it's, it moves oh, the old, now. It the moved to. Is it on Yesler? I don't know. I saw a little sandwich board. I think it moved to something Yesler in Yesler. Right. Well, I've only been to the new one once. Okay, I haven't been to the new one yet, but. The folks listening, Google Catfish Corner and get, yeah. and get it. There are five okras. What's up? Hey. So there, it actually used to be a Caribbean spot off of uh, 50th and University. It's closed. Oh, Pam's Pam. Kitchen. Pam's Kitchen. They mm-hmm. moved to... East Lake, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then there's an, uh, a West African spot uh, mm-hmm. next to the Bank of America when you're going towards on Rainier. Mm, not, for, not far from Orcas. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Well, those are the two spots. Oh, um, okay. What are you What are you listening to currently? Um, so I listen to so much stuff, but I think um, I really love Childish Gambino's new album. Okay. I think that that's pretty fantastic. Purity Ring, which is kind of like a, I don't know if they're EDM. I I don't really like. I listen to lots of things, but I don't really know how it's classified genres, or if it's yeah. popular mm. or not. Like I know that I like it, and I don't. That's all know. that matters. That's yeah, um, there is a funk band called Wolfpack that I really like. They're okay. super into um, on stage shenanigans, like. The bass player plays the whole time and everybody else switches instruments like mid song. Mm, so instead of like during the song break, they'll like <laughs> he'll keep playing and they'll run around uh, okay. on stage like during the show. And so to me, that's super surprising and innovative. Yeah. I just saw um, 
Robert Randolph and the Family Band on okay. Sunday. And their new album, Got Soul, is super amazing. Okay. He plays a slide guitar, mm-hmm. and everybody in the band is like his cousin. He was like introducing <laughs> them, and I was like, oh, when he said family band, he meant it. It's he like my cousin on the drum, and my cousin on keys, and my cousin on guitar, <laughs> and my other cousin on guitar, and my sister is the backup singer. Uh-huh. Like, it was amazing. But the Got Soul album is like super good, you know, kind of gospel-y, R and blues, you know, solid soul. It's it's pretty fantastic. Nice. All right. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you for your time. This was amazing. This was great. Like, I can see a follow-up podcast with each (laughs) of you. Uh, But, yeah, this is great. So thank you all for listening um, to No Blueprint. No Blueprint. No Blueprint.